Thank you, Doc. All right. Uh, the text for today is 1 Timothy 5. It's like 3 through 25. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. If a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow is uh, really in need and uh, left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. But the widow who lives to her pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that uh, no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. For younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. Not only do they become idlers, but busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, have children manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity to slander. For some have, in fact, turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, uh, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out grain and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those elders who are sinning you are to reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep those instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying up on of hands. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water. Use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those uh, that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. All right, so last week, uh, I don't know, we're doing, doing a series on these pastoral letters, and um, the basic theme so far has been the idea that um, we're supposed to put the mystery of, of Christ at the center of how we think about living together in the church and that uh, it, it, it enjoins us to be thankful for the image of God as manifest in every person. And last week we talked a little bit about uh, the idea that um, what the letter is doing is it's setting up a contrast between two houses. One is Caesar's house and uh, one is God's house. And one of the ways of thinking about um, what the letter is trying to achieve is not only to show the differences between those two houses, but to get folks to think about the church as a house in which God is our father, in which Christ is our brother, and as a result of it being a house, there are obligations on us to treat each other in specific ways. So, you know, the differences between the two houses are pretty stark. I talked uh, last week about the Roman household being organized around the paterfamilias, so, you know, guy could execute his children, for example, if they didn't obey, which I 
pointed out to my children this weekend. So, you know, I'm feeling pretty good as dad. Uh, but also, you know, there's this idea that um, we talked about last week that for Rome, the integrity of the household was a big deal because, uh, you know, the power of the paterfamilias, the power of the household led by a father was connected in their minds with the power of Caesar. And the whole idea was if, I don't know, kids are running around and doing whatever kids do and not obeying their parents and especially not obeying their father, well, I don't know, the whole thing would fall apart. So there were these, you know, two concerns uh, in thinking about the household that is Caesar's. The first is it has this, you know, father that is largely uh, bound by law and largely, um, I don't know, guy on a power trip is what it sounds like a lot. But the second big thing for the Romans and for how they thought about fathers and how they thought about family was at the heart of it, whether it be Rome as a house or your own house as a house, houses were about defining who was inside and who was outside. So uh, we talked about this idea of pietas, that you had an obligation to, like a legal and moral obligation to get your families back. And if you ever had to make a choice between what mattered to your family or what mattered to someone else, you had to choose your family. That was the right and moral thing to do. And the same thing with the Romans, like, you know, you, you had a bunch of uh, not quite constitutional protections, but legal protections if you were a Roman citizen. And the Romans didn't really have any sense that those protections applied to anyone else. In fact, if you weren't a Roman, you basically didn't count. And so the idea of the con- contrast between the two houses is that Caesar's house is a house that is basically run by power. It's run by the law. And the question you have to ask yourself is, am I meeting my legal obligations to the law and being a good citizen? But in God's house, it's a little bit different. The basic question is, I don't know, am I being thankful for the image of God as manifest in every person in the house? And so I made the point last week that the, the letter is calling for something that would have been I don't know, totally shocking, like the kind of thing that might have gotten a religious movement potentially kicked out of the empire. It was a totally different vision of, of family, of what it meant to be related to other people, of what your ethical obligations were to other people. And the church wasn't just saying something that was about being nice to each other. The church was saying something that probably ran fairly squarely against the governing ideology for Rome. The idea that you could have a house where anyone who wants to be included can be. And secondarily, that the important thing in that household is not the law, but what? It's love. It's being thankful for and acting in love towards others. So I don't, you know, there's this, there's this idea that it is kind of being pushed by Paul or whoever wrote this, and I guess it doesn't really matter under the inspiration of the Spirit, which is the kind of main thing here, but it's a call to redefine family and household around the idea of common inclusion in the kingdom of God, and even a call, I think, that kind of displaces family ties a little bit and says, instead, your primary obligation is not to Rome or to your biological family of your family of birth, But instead, like uh, Jesus said, that uh, my family are the folks who do the will of God. I don't think he used folks, but that's fine. The other big difference between the household of God and the household of Rome is that in the household of Rome and in the way people thought about houses, there was comparatively little concern for people who were not the heads of the household. Everyone else's property, kids were property, spouses were property, slaves were certainly property. And the house of Caesar doesn't really worry very much 
about the good of those people. It's, it, 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 it understands everything in the context of this really, I don't know, stark hierarchy. And so the, it's not like the Romans were heartless. They had certain legal obligations that your household would have towards other people who were, I don't know, not high in the status hierarchy. Like, for example, there was a law that says uh, if you're a widow, uh, especially if you're a young widow and you're still of reproductive age, you definitely had to get married. And if you didn't get married, Rome would require that your children took care of you. And if your children didn't take care of you, there was like a welfare system. And I don't know. I mean, the Romans cared a little bit about what happened to people who were outside the status hierarchy. And for slaves, it was kind of the same deal. Like, if you were a slave, you didn't have the rights that everybody else had, and there were certain rights that were given to freed persons, etc. But the question you were always asking is, am I doing my legal obligation to maintain this status hierarchy that says the father's at the top and everyone else is, I don't know, if they have rights, they have rights because they're related to the father. Now, here's the thing. The Romans had this system of laws around how households had to act. And one of the things about this letter that I don't think we emphasize enough is that, uh, and this is kind of the point of uh, talking about uh, the Olive Garden metaphor, if you're here, your family. I think the folks in the early church didn't think about this just as a metaphor. I think they literally thought the idea that they had been given a new family and they had been given a new household. And if you think that way, all of a sudden there's this really big challenge. Once you understand the church to be a household, you have to ask the question, what does the church have to do to comply with all these laws that bind Roman households to act in certain ways? And so the question behind slaves, behind elders and leaderships in the church, behind all the people that are treated in this letter is, if we literally understand the church to be a house, the church has to figure out how it and whether or not it should comply with all these different laws that are laid on specific households. And so, as I pointed out last week, there's, you know, 10% of this letter is about how you treat widows. And the important thing is, and as I talked about in the kind of sentence, treat widows as if they are, or only honor widows who are widows, is to figure out how the church executes that duty to taking care of widows. And the widows, as I also talked about last week, were a really interesting case because they were like, a huge portion of the congregation, and as I uh, pointed out before, there were lots of young widows, widows in their 20s and 30s, who you know, had kids and were kind of trying to figure out where to go. And so there's this really pressing question if we understand the church to be a house. And that question is, what does the church do with not just widows, but all these folks who are kind of marginal and who in Roman society would have relied on their house in order to support them and in order to give them, I don't know, a role and an identity and a purpose and all that stuff. So the Romans had these laws. You know, you're supposed to remarry. There's a dowry that protects you. But really, when it came down to it, those, that, that, that obligation to care for widows fell on the, uh, on the household that they were associated with. And so you have to ask the question, where does a widow go when she needs something that she doesn't have? Does she go to her biological family or does she go to the church? And that's the kind of issue that this part of the letter is working through. But there's another kind of fold in it. The other fold in it is that because there were so many really young widows that made up a big portion of the church, and because I imagine it was pretty darn tough to be a young widow, and you know, you'd lost your husband, and you didn't have the support network that you normally had, widows in the church were tempted by a lot of these theological movements that we've been talking about, like that 
uh, the commentators have inferred that a lot of the women, widows in the church were the primary people that were driving this turn to Gnosticism. And it would kind of make sense, wouldn't it? Like, if you'd experienced losing a husband and if you'd experienced all the difficult stuff that widows had to experience because they'd lost social status and they'd lost economic status, it was probably pretty darn easy to say, well, look, the world's a trap and Jesus is going to come back pretty soon anyway, so there's no reason why I have to remarry or do anything. And so there's this kind of big social problem in the context of the church. How does the church deal with widows and how does the church minister to widows, many of whom were tempted by, I don't know, being a Gnostic for very understandable reasons. Rome would have done it with the law. The church does it different. Rome would have asked the question, have I done my duty to these people and to the empire? But the church asks a different question, and that's what's so crucial about this letter. The church asks the question, have I met this person's needs because I love them and I'm thankful for them? Do I really see this person as a member of my family? And because I see them as a member of my family, do I see the image of God as manifest in them? And so, I don't know, the church is basically asking folks within its bounds to think much more expansively about how they could exercise love and how they could exercise care towards others. But if you spin it out, if you imagine at the, you know, the next church meeting, we're going to sit down and we're just going to say, hey, look, we have an obligation to the widows in our community, especially the ones that are affiliated with the church. And really, that uh, embodies a bigger principle that we have an obligation to everyone in our community who is at need. And you started to think about what the church would concretely do to meet that need because the church is literally a family and literally a household and being literally a family and literally a household, there are certain things that you have to do. Well, I don't know, like imagine one of the, like a a Mason would stand up and say, hey, that's, that's great, but there are finite resource constraints for our ability to take care of everyone in our community that we're connected to. What's interesting about that is that the letter spends a lot of time talking about how to deal with those resource constraints. And the important thing about it is not that we need to grab their practices for the widow list. The important thing about it is that there's this principle behind it that when the question's not, am I doing my legal duty, but am I doing my duty in love, the way you think about interacting with people changes radically. It forces you to ask this question. The person is not defined by the law. The person is defined by the fact that they are a person made in the image of God who has needs, and we address those needs in love. And when we ask about the best ways to address those needs, we have to ask questions like how we can be effective towards them and how we can maximize the goals and the mission of the church. So, uh, you know, four, if if a widow has children or grandchildren, they should learn to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray. Give, these, give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now think about that for a little bit. That's a, that's a, it's, a, it's a tough claim, right? Because if it's true that this letter is largely about saying, hey, we have a different household with a different definition of family and the definition of family that we have in the church matters more than the definition of family that we have under the law, I guess the big question is, why does it make you worse than an unbeliever to not take care of your own family? Doesn't it seem like there's some kind of difficult tension there? I mean, it seems like kind of partiality towards or favoritism towards your own family, and it makes sense to us because it reaffirms our common sense. Kin takes care of kin, blood is thicker than water, whatever the thing that you'd say. But the basic question is, why is it that you have a specific obligation to take care of your own family. 
And doesn't that kind of run up against the idea that in the church, the people who are your family are the people who do the will of Christ? Why does it seem like the scripture is saying, look, it's about returning to and taking care of your blood first and then the church afterwards, which would make, I don't know, wouldn't make a lot of sense in the context of a claim that the church is the new family. Okay, so the grammar of this sentence in Greek is very interesting. And it's not unlike the uh, honor widows who are really widows type problem. So I'm going to walk through it in a little bit of detail, but there's a translator's choice here that makes a big difference. Okay, the Greek literally says, anyone who is denied their own, doesn't say family, anyone who is denied their own, and especially the oikos, the household, is worse than an unbeliever. Now, here's the thing. There are two things that are entirely clear on the first reading that I've been kind of talking about for a moment without those nudges from the translator to insert their own family. And I think if you read it the, what, the way the translator suggested, it makes it really hard to figure out exactly what the letter's saying. But it doesn't say their own family. It says their own. It's, and the point of the letter is that God's house is a new house. It provides us with a new family and that Jesus' model of family is whoever does the will of the Father. And the model of the letter is that instead of us thinking about our legal obligations to our family, our legal obligations to the empire, that we discharge our obligations to the kingdom without favoritism and without partiality. And if that's right, the idea that the folks who live in your biological family are your first and primary focus, I don't think it can be exactly right. It's awfully difficult to square that with the rest of the letter. But... And this is how I read it. If the their own doesn't include that family that the uh, translator has inserted, but instead the their own is that if you have taken seriously and you've embraced the idea that the church is a house and that the community of Christ is your family, it changes things. It's not only that it changes things because it changes how we think about living together, but it actually makes sense out of the unbeliever part. If you're a believer and you know that every person is made in the image of God and that every person is a person that God has made and every person is a person for whom you have to be thankful because they individually evidence the mystery of Christ and they are aligned with and they are a member of your family because the church is the main house and not the house you live in, well, then it makes sense why there's a problem with saying that someone becomes worse than an unbeliever if they don't take care of the church because they haven't internalized, they haven't acted on, they haven't made the core of their understanding, the world that they share family with every person who shares Jesus with them. And so I think what the, what the letter is asking us to do is to take care of not only our own biological families, because we're asked to do that, that's something that God charges us with, but that we're also asked to take care of every person who is in the church and who is uh, manifest the image of God by virtue of being created out of grace and out of God's mercy. So the claim here, I think, is something beautiful. It's saying that we need a much more expansive vision of what it means for us to to fulfill the obligations of the kingdom and, and of the church and of the church as a family. And that's the basic logic behind the idea of even as you do unto the least of these, you do unto me because Jesus is asking us to see the world different. And I'll close on this note of without partiality and, and or favoritism, but there's a little way till we'll, till we'll get there. So the church asks you and Jesus asks us to see every person as someone for whom we'd be thankful for, as every person who manifests the image of God. The church asks us, to see the possibilities for us 
entering into relationships and love that transform people, that meet them uh, with where their needs are, that change their lives for the good. And as, as I pointed out just a moment ago, the only difficulty in really taking that seriously is it's hard to know where you should focus, what you should choose to do, because in the fallen world, the church is limited to a certain extent by our resources, by our time, by our ability to do the things that we want to do. And so the letter is suggesting this idea that when you think about to whom you should give resources, the first And when you think about to whom you should exercise love, the first question is, are they a person made in the image of God? And of course, the idea there is yes. And if they're a person made in the image of God who shares in a vision of the kingdom, then the question is, how do we give in ways that most maximize the ability of the church to achieve the things that it wants to achieve? And so that's what I think all these things like 9 through 12 are about. No widows on the list unless she's over 60 has been faithful to her husband, is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of deeds. As for younger widows, don't put them on a sensual list when their sensual desires overcome their dedication, da-da-da-da-da-da. And I don't know, like you read it and it feels like a bunch of widow shaming, doesn't it? Like basically we're deciding whether or not to reach out to help people based on their, uh, their, their kind of moral line. But I think the principle is different here then it's translated and it follows the kind of same thing that is the issue with both uh, Titus and Timothy that I've been talking about for a while is that it puts legal and procedural obligations at the fore and not the idea of us seeing and responding to the mystery of Christ and the movement of Christ within the context of our churches. And the principle here to me is when people are aligned with the church and in need, those are the people that we want to help because it advances the interests of the kingdom. And the measure here is not the law. The measure here is not any question of equity. The measure here is self-sufficiently, what is it that advances the ability of the kingdom to be a better house? So the point of all these is that the church should make judgments about what advances the mission and who's truly in need and who's truly able to care for themselves. And the idea is that beyond Rome's kind of list of all the things that you have legal obligations for, the new question we should ask is how do we make real a vision of love in the context where we have limited time and resources, and how do we look for what's the measure? The people who are most marginal, who are most locked out, the people who are in difficult situations because of their social status or because they've been abandoned by their family or because they're not Roman or because they're not freed people because they're slaves. And I don't know, all of a sudden we have a vision of what Christian ethics look like that instead of ignoring the question of whether or not people are in a difficult situation. It presumes that every person is made in the image of God, that every person is a worthy object of love. And then it starts the question, where can we give and what can we do in order to most maximize the impact of the church? Not because we're simply seeking a utilitarian calculation, but instead we want to be good stewards of the things that God has given us to build the household in a way that advances the kingdom and demonstrates to the world exactly who we are and what it means to have this expansive vision of love. And when you start to take that commitment seriously, when you say that the primary thing that the church is supposed to do is to advance mercy and to advance grace and to think about how to do it in concrete terms, it's, it's not just about widows, it's not just about slaves, it's not just even about folks on the other side, the folks who would have been the elders in the congregation, it's about us acting in ways that are agnostic towards social status and instead thinking about the ways that we can bring the transformative power of Jesus to people in ways that meaningfully advance and build the household, the body. That's why there's a, I don't know, specific thing about elders here. What, what, elders who direct the church, this is 17, uh, the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor. 
especially those who do preaching and teaching. Do not muzzle an ox. I appreciate train oxes. <laughs> it shouldn't be when it's trading out grade. The worker deserves his wages. But here's the crucial point. Do not, well, I guess it's weird to say here's the, do not entertain any accusations. Friends, there's some strange things coming. No, I'm just kidding. It would be funny to pretend like there was a crisis. And there's not. Anyway, the point is, and I think the business end of all of this, those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. Every time in this letter, there's a reference to a specific category or a specific person who deserves some obligation or might be worthy of some honor, the, 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 the author makes the point almost immediately after in, in, in almost every case that the idea is not just that we give special honor to some people, but the idea is that we hold people accountable to the uh, vision of what the kingdom can be or ought to be because the point of the church is that instead of putting the law or the culture or our own vision of family or the people who matter to us first, we put the kingdom of God first and we see each person as self-sufficiently embodying and being made in the image of God. That's why I think the concluding part here is so crucially important. Verse 21 through 22, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not share the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Look, why is it the most important principle? I think it's the most important principle because, well, I don't know, there's a number of things. So the I charge you, that word is diamarturumai. And you hear the word inside it, right? Martyr. It's not just I charge you like I'm asking you to follow these instructions. The point that, 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 that Paul or whoever wrote it is conveying to Timothy is that you are to witness and to die to yourself and invite others to witness and to die to themselves by doing two basic things. First, realize what you do shouldn't be judged in the eyes of the culture or in the eyes of Caesar or even in the eyes of the opinions of other people. Whose eyes matter? God's. That what we do, we do, and we do to honor and we do out of an obligation to see and to follow and to advance the image of God and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and to build God's kingdom. So, you know, we don't think about Rome. We don't think about our culture. We don't think about our personal preferences. Instead, we witness and die to ourselves so that what we do, we do because it happens in the eyes of God and Jesus and the angels and the whole kind of host of heaven that is present and that that is what we uh, that at the level of how we interact with an individual what are we supposed to do be thankful for them because we see them as made in the mercy and grace of christ so it influences how we interact with individual people but it also influences how we think about ourselves and what the measure of it is the measure is not caesar or the law or the culture or anything else the measure is that it happens in the image of and under the under the side of god and there's two kind of qualities there what are they no partiality and no favoritism. And these are great Greek words, okay? No partiality is the Greek word uh, without prokrinatos. The Greek word krino means judgment. So to do it without partial or to do it without partiality in that sense means don't judge anyone in advance. In advance of what? That's the weird question. Don't judge people in advance of what? And I think the point is that the letter is holding up this idea that is an implicit critique of Rome and of the law and of culture and of all the things even that we do ourselves. Like we move through the world by sorting people into categories and figuring out where they fit in that category and asking ourselves, how should we act towards other people on the basis 
of that category. That is a pro-crino. It's a means of judging in advance. The whole Roman law was premised on the idea that you could judge in advance what you owed people based on where they sat in a social status. The reason to point out widows and slaves and elders is not to say, hey, we're going to do categories different. The reason to point it out is to say, if we really believe that people are relevant because they're made in the image of Christ and if our obligation is to them is love, we don't judge in advance. Instead, for each person and in each setting, we ask, what do they need? How do I love them? And what does it look like to push forward for them a vision of love that is responsive to what they need and is responsive to where they are? And that's the model, not just because it helps us treat widows better or slaves better or elders better, but because it asks a different question of us as we respond to the person of Jesus and other people. So don't judge in advance. And the favoritism word, that is also really good. It's a proclesinos, which means to lean or be inclined towards something. I don't know, like how many times have you made decisions in day-to-day life where you are inclined towards or lean towards someone because you like them or because they are similar to you or because you think they're great or because you feel guilty about them? And I don't know, the two principles here are this. Don't judge people in advance on the basis of a category. Instead, see Jesus. And don't judge people in advance on the basis of whether or not you lean towards or incline towards them. What makes Jesus' house different from Caesar's is that instead of asking, what does this person deserve, or what am I legally obligated to do, we say, what does it mean to manifest love for this person in this case? And that's a vision of love that transcends, in my opinion, every category, every means of prejudgment, and it simply asks if a person is in a specific situation and I know I can exercise towards them something in love and I know that it does so in a way that is meaningful for them and demonstrates the mercy and the power and the grace of Jesus Christ, then that is the guide for our behavior. That's it. That's what it means to operate inside of God's house as opposed to operate inside of Caesar's house, to not have things that are based on partiality, to not have things that are based on our own inclinations, but instead to apply in each individual instance the question of what is it that I would do were I responding to and being driven by Jesus Christ and engaging this person. And that may well mean that you can look at people who are in situations where because of, I don't know, uh, because of poverty or social economic status or race, they are in a difficult Situation, but the point is to not make that judgment saying I have a moral obligation to that person on the basis of that category, but instead to look at people and say I have an obligation to them that responds to their concrete conditions because the question is love and the thing that I'm asked to do is not to judge in advance the person, but instead to think about the way that I can create impact. And just because uh, you know I've enjoyed the razzing of the Gnostics, there's this uh, thing in 23. So anyway, values that made Caesar's house, not God's house. Caesar, partiality, favoritism, God's house, different. Okay, Raz and the Gnostics, ready? Stop drinking only water. Use a little wine because your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Okay, this is great. The Gnostics were basically like you could only drink water because it was the purest and closest to and least materially corrupted. And the point of the razzing here was that if you really needed to fix your stomach instead of worrying about some abstract spiritual law, you might as well slug down a little bit of wine and it'll fix your ailing stomach. And it seems like a small detail, but I love it because it embodies the principle. The principle is instead of deciding on the basis of law or rule, decide on the basis of what produces utility. 
what produces and evidences love and mercy and grace. And acting like a Christian then is about all the small and big concrete choices we make that bring life a little bit closer to the perfection of the kingdom. And so, I don't know, instead of being constrained by the water only rule, have a little wine because the point is the effects of our action matter and we have to ask the question, not what am I obligated to do or mandated to do, but what can I do in a specific setting that brings about a vision of mercy and grace and love. And that's why it concludes with this idea, 24, the sins of some are obvious reaching the place of judgment ahead of them, the sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. Look, so should it be with us. The measure of how we interact with people, the measure of how we build a house, the measure of what it looks like to regulate the behavior of the church, the measure of what it looks like for us to live our ethical obligations towards others, for love, for peace, for mercy, for justice. The point here is that we can't simply say that there are things that you have to do on the basis of the law, but constantly asking the question, what does it mean for me to be loyal to and to be a good representative of and be to hands and the face and the feet and to be the mercy and the grace and peace of Jesus Christ in any given situation. That's what it means to build a house around the person of Jesus. That's what makes God's house different from Caesar's. And so we're challenged to be not only different, but to be better in the sense of thinking about how we can concretely bring about love and grace. Amen. Questions or talk?